Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Welcome, everybody, to this Sydney Ideas event. I think we'll kick off now, uh, an event um, that I'm really pleased to welcome you to exploring the connections between the creative arts, health and healing. I'd like to extend a special welcome to those of you who have travelled some distance to be here, who have come from uh, very busy lives in large organisations and policy institutions, and uh, those who have worked very hard to make tonight possible. Before we begin, uh, I would like to um, uh, acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the lands where we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and to pay my respect to elders past, present and with us, and emerging, and to any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in the audience. And this acknowledgement is all the more profoundly important on a night where we talk about the connections between the creative arts, culture, health and healing, since we have so much to learn from those who have been practitioners of those connections for 60,000 years or more. So tonight, the big idea that we want to present to you in from four very different angles is the notion that the creative arts are critical to health and healing because of the four C's, because health and healing are fundamentally determined by connection to culture, community and country, and the creative arts are critical enablers of that connection. Um, our four speakers uh, tonight approach this topic, if I can make the clicker work, um, from different perspectives. And I'd like to move us on now um, to uh, welcome to the stage Vic McEwen, uh, Chief Artist, Independent Artist from the Naranda region, um, where his socially engaged arts practice um, is explored um, under the guise of the CAD factory. Thank you, Vic. Uh, thank you very much, everyone. It's a pleasure to travel from Miradjuri country um, here to Sydney to give this talk this evening. In 2015, I was invited to be the keynote speaker at the Rural Health Congress in New South Wales. And that invitation brought with it two things that are very central to my artistic practice. The first thing was that it was about decentering some of our conversations away from city centres. It was about placing that conversation in a regional context, having that conversation about new knowledge, having that conversation about health, and having that conversation about care within a regional place. The second thing that I brought with it was the ability for me to bring my arts practice in relationship to the non-arts sector. So in this case, bringing it in relationship to health, something that had driven my arts practice for the last 15 years, taking myself outside of the arts world and engaging with the real life, with day-to-day -day life, with the different sectors that form our communities in terms of arts practice. And this keynote speech went very well, and afterwards I was approached by many people who wanted to discuss some of the ideas that I presented. And at the end of the talk, I was approached by a man who I was later, it was later explained to me, held a very senior position in uh, rural health and had a, held a very senior position in a university back here in Sydney. And that man approached me and said, Vic, I just wanted to say thank you, and he shook my hand. 
And as he was shaking my hand, he said to me, when I arrived at this conference this morning and I saw that the keynote speaker was an artist, I thought, holy fuck. <laughs> I have to sit here for 45 minutes and listen to this man talk about, I got together a group of people, we did some paintings, and all of a sudden everyone was better. But he then continued, but what you shared today was profound and I just wanted to say thank you. And so from that experience, I take two reflections. One of those reflections is the ability of the arts of the arts and of arts practice to within just the um, length of 45 minutes take somebody that has a very entrenched and negative position and to turn that position on its head. Not just for that person individually, but to the extent where he wanted to come up and seek me out and to share that change that happened in him over the course of the 45 minutes of listening to my talk. The other reflection that I had from this experience was about how many professions, when you're in a professional work context, have to be exposed by such a direct non-validation of your presence in a place. How many professions would have to put up with somebody coming and having that reflection to you? And I would argue probably no other professions you would have to put up with that sort of thing. And so it brings me to something as we have these conversation about, conversations about arts and health and about the, roles that, the role that the arts can have within health, that alongside all of those conversations we have about evaluation and all those conversations we have about measurement, that we also have to have conversations about things such as validation, how we place worth on the people as they place themselves into some of these situations, how we teach artists to feel validated and how we teach people working within non-art sectors to validate the artists that present themselves before them. And so my arts practice for a long time has involved itself deeply with community. And so that might involve, for example, working with farming communities around the release of the Murray-Darling Basin Plan, a very contentious thing, and using contemporary arts practice to explore some of that. It might be working with communities about the higher than um, national average rates of suicide that are in the region that we are um, living in, and using contemporary arts practice to explore some of those issues. Or it might be about exploring some of the ongoing issues as a result of colonisation that exists between farmers and Indigenous community in the region that we live. And so it was a number of years ago that I realised that this practice that I've been having for 15 years with my partner Sarah and independently is really have all been health projects in some way. So all of these projects that are about people understanding their place, understanding the, the issues that exist in the communities around them, all make a contribution to that person's health. And so it was an understanding of this that um, led me to understand that there is a much difference between an arts practice that's based itself um, in communities. And then in 2014, when I started basing my practice within clinical spaces, that there was a, a direct linkage between these two things. So in 2014, I accepted an invitation to go to the UK and started working at Alder Hay Children's Hospital in Liverpool. And I travelled there three times a year for four years on a project that's starting point was a medical starting point. So we started with 14 medical research papers that tells us about the effects that noise within our hospital space is having on patients. And so those effects that have come out of that medical research include increases in medication, increase in length in hospital stay, um, sleep disturbance, stress, etc. And so the idea was what contribution might an artist who has an interest in sound make to some of this medical research that tells us, one, that no hospital in the world has met the World Health Organization's recommendations for sound levels within hospitals, and what impact might an artist have on some of that medical research. And so the outcomes of that were, were very strong and, strong and across many um, 
orders. And I think the reason that happened was because there was a validation of my presence within that space. So the idea of an artist being in Alder Hay Hospital on a project that wasn't commenced with the idea of KPIs, it was commenced with the idea of what would happen if we were allowed an artist to be in this space and undergo a creative process that is led by human experience and human connection. And because of that validity that was placed on my position there, it meant that the outcomes reached the medical world. So I was able to make recommendations to the hospital about changes in design, changes in work practice, changes in behaviour within the hospital to help reduce some of the noise impacts there. We had artistic outcomes. So the work was invited to be shown at the Tate in Liverpool. So we had a major artistic outcome from the work and also many human outcomes. So for example, I started working very closely with a young 17-year-old girl whose parents were having conversations around palliative care. And during that process, we decided to record her heartbeat or to teach her mother how to use my recording equipment in order to record her heartbeat. And we then travelled with that recording of a single heartbeat to the highlands of Scotland where there's a location buried within the highlands in between World War I and World War II where sound lasts longer than any, any place on earth. And we thought, what would it take to take this recording of a heartbeat of a young girl who doesn't have long left in this world potentially and to play it and re-record it and to hear it and feel it within the space on earth where sound lasts longer than anywhere else. And so we travelled to north of Inverness in Scotland and played this um, heartbeat sound and re-recorded it and then returned back uh, down to London and then to Liverpool. And unfortunately, when we returned, Alicia, whose heartbeat it was, passed away before she had a chance to hear this two-minute version of a heartbeat, this thing that has become the longest heartbeat ever heard, a single heartbeat that lasts for two minutes. But what this sound has started to represent is, an, is a place for her family, her extended family and her friends to explore and understand their grief around this sound. So her family who have become, on the five visits that I've made to the UK since Alicia's parting, have become very active within the public sharings that we've had of this um, two-minute heartbeat, have all talked about the impact it's had in terms of grieving, in terms of the role that it's played in allowing them to have discussions about the loss of this young person. And so this sort of value that crosses over medical boundaries, it crosses over art boundaries, and it crosses over human boundaries in terms of an arts project that's validated and understood in terms of its arts practice has been profound for me. And so it was following that, that process that I started to understand that there's a rich potential for my artistic practice to also include potential for research on top of its artistic outcomes. And so I started to think about the idea of undertaking a PhD that was practice-led, arts practice-led PhD, and to maybe basing that within a health space. And I gave a talk at Sydney University um, last year and afterwards was approached by Dr. Susan Colson, who's in the audience here tonight. And she was telling me about her work at the Sydney Facial Nerve Clinic, working with people who she described some of them having the inability to express emotion on their face in the way that we express, might express no emotion normally. And this idea as an artist and as a human being really struck me very deeply and I thought what, a, what an honour it would be, what a privilege it would be to be positioned within that space as an artist and to, to be able to have some sort of exploration there. And so I was invited to observe the Facial Nerve Clinic and made a visit there and in my first visit, met a patient, William, who during that time, he was a 26-year-old man and has experiencing facial nerve paralysis as a result of a brain tumour 14 years ago, brain tumour that still exists. And so he sat in the room and as Susan asked him, how are you coping? He burst into tears and sobbed for nearly five minutes. 
When Susan inquired as to, I'm, I'm sorry, do you want me to stop talking about how you're feeling? He said, no, it's just it's the first time I've ever been asked. So 14 years into his medical treatment for facial paralysis and a brain tumour, it's the first time he's been asked how he's coping. And so obviously the emotional outpouring for him at that time was great. And so since then, William and I have been working very closely together, um, exploring his story, exploring the emotional aspect of facial paralysis and the emotional aspect of him having a brain tumour, the emotional aspect of what it means to be a patient in that context. And during that process, I made the decision to both enrol in a PhD here at Sydney University, but then made what I think is a very unique decision um, to base my PhD not in the arts, but in health sciences, and which next year will be the Faculty of Medicine and Health. So although I have a supervisor within the arts and a supervisor within medical ethics, my enrolment sits within the medical field of health sciences. So I'm understanding my practice there, positioned very strongly as an experimental contemporary artist and trying to navigate and understand what that means to position myself officially within that space to see what contributions that I can make within the, the interdisciplinary model of the Sydney Facial Nerve Clinic. Now, it's not that unusual that an artist might be in that space. Charles Bell, whom Bell's palsy is named after, himself was a very great artist, and his arts practice wasn't just for the process of anatomical education. His, his, arts, his art making was um, deeply advanced and something that he explored in a very um, deep way in terms of art making. Charles Bell himself discussed art's ability to explore what he describes as the vagaries of the brain. So it's within that, with that sort of acknowledgement of somebody like Charles Bell of understanding the role that we can play within the arts that I place myself in this position working with both staff and with patients in the Sydney Facial Nerve Clinic, exploring what it means to, to not be able to express emotion through the normal visual representation of emotion that we might have, to try to understand through arts practice the beauty that does exist within illness, the beauty that does exist between the interaction between a patient and their doctor or a patient and their support staff, and to understand that in all of these things, there is, a, there is a beauty that we can value. There is a beauty that we might discuss ways of measuring, but there is a beauty that we can feel, that we can touch, and that we can share through artistic practice. Thank you very much. Thank you, Vic, for um, giving us beauty first off. And to follow beauty, I would like to welcome to the stage <laughs> Dr. Clive Parkinson from the Manchester School of Art. Um, Clive has been an academic working in the space of arts and health as a pioneer for an extremely long time, located at the nascent Manchester Institute for Arts, Health and Social Change at Manchester Metropolitan. Um, he was a founding member of the UK Culture, Health and Wellbeing Alliance, um, whose website and resources provide so much for those of us expanding and developing the field of arts and health in Australia. Welcome, Clive. I was a little bit worried after Vic left the stage and was called beauty, because that can only mean one thing. I'm your beast. Um, I come here at a very tricky time. My little island is increasingly irrelevant. And... I apologize on behalf of my bloated leader, you know, for the mess it's in. So my presentation starts with somebody else speaking because regardless of them, I want to have, keep imagination in our minds. I'm all agog. What is this thing, arts and health? 
The fancy decoration of buildings, where offers of cures are sometimes doled out. Mean making of our toxic anxieties for a mindful moment. All I know is I'm part of something that twists and evolves every day. Something that the politicians think might be useful to tame and contain. Miracle elixirs and soft, sweet salves, a little distraction perhaps. In an asylum for idiots and imbeciles of the northern counties, Victorian words, not mine, I spent a good few years, honest graft in the bleakest of places. Grown men and women reduced their label, high grade to low grade, and all that grey matter in between. Pregnant or insubordinate, written off and hidden away, or just not right in the head. Communal baths, teeth extracted, regimented lives, fucks, fights and fists, broken noses, burnt arms, torns at throats and torns at wrists. But little glimmer, I become the bloke who does the art in a room where people go who've got challenging behaviour. Bang goes the boredom, the institutional anxiety slips away for a while, scissors, glue, Paint and paper, childish, nope. Pliers and metal knives, actors, musicians, artists stream on through. Not one incident to report in 15 years. Do no harm. Community, praise, affirmation, visceral pleasures and dark experimentation. A man defined only by screaming and lashing out creates sublime objects. He laughs like something buried deep inside him has been set free, a sound not heard in the hospital before, a little existential bliss. Years later, I dwelt in asylum sitting with my brother, with diagnoses so exotic drawn down from psychiatry's Bible and carried through life with the weight of shame. Bullied by the state and those who should know better. Bleary-eyed and on a chemical lock-in. High-back vinyl chairs and the smell of piss. At home, our mother retreated into painting by numbers. I'm witness to her deep flow state. She thrived, showing me what could be done. But in my reverie, I digress. This arts and health thing has become something. A movement, a field, a discipline, or a commodity. The hospitals have become great temples to culture, statement pieces outshining cuts to services. And the galleries and museums have thrown open their doors to the lonely and the dispossessed, mandated by those with vision and the demands of state funders to fulfill some quotas. A possible route to betterment, but by whose standards? Blonde-haired businessmen, dressed in cheap suits, perfect models of parliamentary behaviour. Scale it up, they shout, acquire in every care home, arts on prescription, like some dysfunctional wedding overseen by the Minister for Health, we are given an impossible challenge. We call upon those artists here present to resolve all social ills. Provide us with free social cures. Here is your cultural vaccine where cost efficiencies are the primary motivation. 
What is the evidence that you're after exactly? We've taken your bloods, measured your serotonin, observed your improved self-esteem. You can be the best possible version of yourself. We've synthesized your data, captured your face, your behavior, caught hold of your flickering algorithms. We watch you. We've got your body down to a range of quantified normality, of happy bovine acceptance of all those slings and arrows, of pushing that rock further up the hill. Bloated white Victorians collected us and put pins through our imperfect spines, catalogued, labelled and branded for life. The medical gaze black bile, phrenology, eugenics, and the imperfect navigation of our psychological terrain. Worthy or worthless human capital, the roots of our maladies. Some hide their despair in plain sight, shooting, snorting, bottlenecking their drugs, while others consume the well-marketed offers of legal high street poisons, of plumped-up faces, flawless, luminous, standardised and muted, happy, bright, blue, blue, neon smiles. I can't read your face anymore, so I don't know how to express my own. What is it I feel? Hiding away in plain sight, Instagramming our sanitized versions of our perfect lives, 67% of the world own a mobile phone. We exist in a constant state of alertness, but never really giving our full attention. Adrenaline, cortisol, hyper alert, constantly scanning for stimuli, addiction temporarily assuaged by checking in, continuous, partial attention. Weighing up your gains in friends and likes in our virtual gated communities. A young man in Sweden cries for help online on a mental health community. Some offer kindness, others goad him to kill himself. While many watch, he takes his own life online. His deadly ligature, the very network cable that connect him to the world. How can I measure moments of despair, measure hope, measure the weight of flowering of an idea or the physical volume of love? In the absence of blind faith in old gods, how can I really truly understand my finite life in relation to yours and yours? How might we all understand time and our contribution in the present tense to a million years to come? I'm blindsided. In 2014, a child became depressed, stopped talking, stopped eating, obsessive, compulsive, selectively mute, crushed by the world. Then, like a bolt of lightning, a diagnosis of Asperger's was embraced, not as a deficit or a problem, but as a superpower. This tiny giant sailed across the Atlantic and was angry with the UN. Extinction, rebellion embraced her mantle, blurring the boundaries between theatrical disruption, imagery, music, and street theatre, galvanizing diverse people towards mass action, contemporary arts, activism. Artists offered up as free social cures or disruptors to the status quo, researchers in their own right. 
How about critical, difficult, complex, and beguiling? We've hidden away our undesirables in communities, in buildings, and with chemicals, ignoring these problems that seem too entrenched to change. But right here, right now, those who've been shut up for so long are speaking truth to power. The possibilities of the arts to move beyond being simple pacifiers, taking us beyond distraction and soporific flow state has never felt more needed. Now is the time to redefine the arts and health agenda away from individual consumption, leading it into active, critical participation, learning from the past to reimagine the future. The arts in all their forms might wrestle the factors that underpin all our health out of traditional hierarchies that sometimes constrain and apportion blame. This is a critical moment when the arts and health agenda must embrace social change as central to its vision, moving towards collective environmental public health. Thank you. Thank you, Clive. We have beauty and a way of articulating the things that really matter to us. And we have had two mentions of the difficulties of measurement. So it is just right that I should now be able to welcome to the stage a, a proper scientist, Dr. Nicole Riley, who's a research fellow at the University of Newcastle School of Nursing and Midwifery and an expert in the area of perinatal and maternal mental health research, which she has conducted for over 15 years. Thank you, Nicole. Thanks everyone for coming out tonight. I tend to have this misfortune of following speakers um, that are as compelling and evocative as these guys have been. So I um, will just change pace a little bit now and what I'd like us all to do is um, just take a few moments really to reflect on the growing evidence base in this arts and health domain and why this evidence is important. Um, so as Claire mentioned, my own background is in perinatal mental health, but I'm just very briefly summarising some of the evidence in this field tonight, um, far more broadly than that. Some of you who work in this space might be very familiar with some of this work um, already, but I also fully appreciate that for other people, things like research and evaluation and evidence can seem unnecessarily academic. Um, so if that does describe you, please bear with me, because in my view, the generation and exchange of existing and new knowledge can be a critical act in and of itself. Um, so first, looking at what we know about the impact of cultural engagement and arts engagement at a community level. So by engagement here, I'm referring um, in general to things like engaging with music or sport or arts events, um, visits to museums, exhibitions, libraries, the theatre, concerts and the like. So Many, many studies now um, and a number of review papers have shown that voluntary engagement with arts and cultural activities can enhance social, emotional and physical health in a whole range of ways. Um, it can increase uh, social support and people's feelings of social connectedness. Um, in turn, that reduces a sense of isolation and can increase happiness, resilience um, and, and quality of life. 
Um, studies have also shown, sorry, that the arts um, and engagement in the arts at a voluntary level can facilitate intergenerational and cultural exchange and can help to promote a, a healthier lifestyle. And in some studies have even shown a reduction in mortality risk, which is extraordinary. Um, recent work conducted here in Australia uh, by Christina Davies and her colleagues in Western Australia um, also showed that um, the greatest benefits in terms of mental health and well-being, at least, were seen in those that were able to engage in arts or cultural activities for at least two hours a week. So this type of work is really important because it points to issues like equity of access to the arts and the cultural activities and what this might mean for people who uh, don't have that type of access or who live in communities or regions where investment in the arts is lower than it is elsewhere. Um, so moving now to uh, the use of arts as an intervention in health settings, which I think for many of us working in the health space is what we might default to thinking about when we think about arts in health. Um, so I don't have time to go into any huge detail um, here, but just by way of an introduction, arts initiatives have been used to support health in such a wide range of population groups, um, including the elderly, uh, those with young and later onset dementia, for example, people experiencing low and high prevalence mental health conditions, um, those with physical health conditions uh, like cancer, chronic respiratory illness, um, it's been used to help return servicemen. The list really could go on. Um, but taken together, the overarching evidence in this space um, has shown that participation in arts therapies or arts interventions or when you're receiving healthcare in an environment that is supportive of the arts, um, it's associated with things like decreases in symptoms of depression and anxiety, um, of trauma and distress, it's been shown to increase protective factors like coping and resilience and quality of life. Um, in particular, clinical groups like surgical patients, for example, arts interventions have also been associated with better pain management, reduced medication use, and a decreased length of stay in hospital. So the implications of this work for the planning and delivery of real person-centred clinical care as well as the potential impacts from a, from a health system or an economic level um, are, are of real practical relevance in this space. I was reluctant to single out any single population group tonight because there are just so many examples uh, where arts and cultural engagement are making real meaningful differences to people's lives. But I did feel compelled to shine a spotlight just briefly on the arts and child health um, because as a community, I think that most of us would see the value of optimising the health and well-being of our children and young people. So a recent review, which included a number of studies that have been conducted here in Australia, um, showed that for children, participating in arts activities had a really positive effect on things like um, uh, their self-confidence and self-esteem. Um, it improved their capacity to build relationships and enhance their sense of belonging. So these are all qualities which have long been associated with things like resilience and emotional well-being. Um, that particular review looked at arts activities that took place within community settings or as extracurricular activities um, that were offered within a school setting. However, similar positive impacts have been reported from programs that target 
disconnected youth and other at-risk groups. For me, I think it's particularly timely to think about this sort of work in light of recent burden of disease reports, for example, where in Australia we know that anxiety and depression are among the leading causes of non-fatal disease burden for adolescents and for children as young as five. And I think it's incredibly important for us to start to think uh, in more innovative ways about um, how the health, education, arts and community sectors can work together to help support our young people uh, to lead the most healthy and fulfilling lives they can. Um, I'll just leave you with this very useful visual that was included in the UK Parliamentary Group report um, on heart's health and wellbeing a couple of years ago. Um, for me, it's just such a neat summary of the impacts that arts can have on health um, at an individual community and at an economic level. So some of the most compelling data here for me, um, particularly as we think about social determinants of health, include that social, uh, sorry, that attendance at cultural events um, up the top there is determined at least in part in the UK uh, by things like educational level and prosperity. And it really does relate to that equity of access issue that I uh, alluded to earlier. But looking also at examples of arts programs and arts therapies, um, we can see that over three quarters of people living in disadvantaged communities in London who participated in arts programs reported improvements in their emotional and physical well-being. Um, at the top there, you can see a remarkable impact of music therapy um, on the medication use and feelings of agitation with people in dementia. So these are conditions that are affecting tens of thousands of people in Australia each year. Um, the potential return on investment for any policymakers um, in the audience at both a public health um, uh, and at a level of targeted arts initiatives is really quite striking. So my goal in presenting this information isn't to reduce the arts to a series of slogans or numbers, but it's instead to really highlight, um, as others far more qualified than me have before now, that as investment in the arts increases and as arts programs become more recognised as important in policy and practice, so too will the demand for evidence to support reinvestment in those programs continue. Um, that evidence is important not just because it can inform uh, the, in, the delivery of optimal models of patient-centred care um, in those clinical populations, but evidence is such a strong advocacy tool and, in my view, is really critical in ensuring that public and professional confidence in these types of initiatives is maintained into the future. Um, but it's important to keep in mind, of course, that the most effective and sustainable of these programs um, really need to be approached collaboratively and in real partnership with the people in the communities that we hope will benefit from them. Thank you. Thank you so much, Nicole. It's a very compelling case, as you mentioned, and um, particularly where the social determinants of health, of which the primary one is social inclusion and connection as a determinant of the outcomes. And to explain and discuss how this occurs, I'd like to welcome to the stage Akisha Dart. Akisha is a Barkindji woman from Broken Hill. She completed her Indigenous mental health clinician training from Charles Sturt University in 2008. And... Um, um, so she's going to talk to us about what arts and health looks like at the coalface of practice and research. Thank you. 
Um, before I begin, I'd like to take this opportunity to acknowledge traditional custodians of the land on which we meet tonight, the Gadigal people of the Aurora Nation. I'd like to pay my respects to the elders, both past and present, and a special um, acknowledgement to Arnie and Rhonda Dixon, who's here with us tonight. I would also acknowledge, would like to acknowledge the lands on which this project has taken place. The Gamilaro people of Tamworth, the Biripai Nation of Tari, and the Womarai people of Foster. I would like to further this acknowledgement and pay my respect to any other Aboriginal people here tonight and to the locals and the travellers. My name is Akeisha. I'm a proud Barkindji woman from Broken Hill who now calls Port Macquarie home. I'm a very proud mother of two children, Tiana and Hunter, and I'm the PhD student working on the Strengthening Women's Project. My background is in clinical mental health with a social science degree. I've spent a large part of my professional career working with New South Wales Health, community-controlled organisations, NGOs, not-for-profit organisations. My passion for mental health stems from my childhood, where growing up in a family with mental health was extremely prevalent. I made the choice to do what I can to help my people, and that is why I'm here tonight. I would also like to acknowledge the rest of my research team, Dr Nicole Riley, Dr Beth Maher, who is a perinatal and infant psychiatrist with a research and clinical interest in transgenerational trauma, and Associate Professor Kim Ray, who is a reproductive scientist who has focused her career on improving outcomes for Aboriginal women and their children. Unfortunately, both Dr Ma and Associate Ray are both unable to attend tonight. Okay. Before we begin, I'd, I, uh, we felt it was important to remind ourselves of the context in which Aboriginal communities are living and the reasons for studies like this. Our Australian history is not a pleasant one for the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities. In particular, by the 1900s, many, many communities were massacred or moved from their traditional lands into church-run missions. The purpose of this was to develop Christian ideas into the population and to, and to prepare them for work as it was felt that the roaming hunter-gatherer lifestyle undertaken by communities was inappropriate. The Stolen Generation is the name given to at least 100,000 Aboriginal children who were forcibly removed or taken under duress from their families by police or welfare officers between 1910 and 1970. These children were not only removed from their families, they were removed from their culture and they lost their identities. When we, look at it, when we look back at the timeline, we see that this was only yesterday's news. There are many people today still living the effects of the stolen generation. They are mothers, fathers, uncles, aunties, grandmothers and grandfathers. However, the grief and loss does not stop there. We have a new generation coming through who have also lost connection to culture and their identities from the ongoing transgenerational grief and loss suffered by those children and families who were removed. The Strengthening Women's Project. Assessing the effectiveness of using an art health intervention to improve the social and emotional well-being of mothers and carers of Indigenous children from birth to school age. The University of Newcastle's Associate Professor Kim Ray was approached by the Taree community with the request to work with the community in developing arts health-based social and emotional wellbeing program designed to assist mothers and carers. This invitation was then put forward to the foster community who excitedly accepted the opportunity. The Strengthening Women's Project has been in the making for more than three years. 
The research team have spent countless hours building a presence within the two communities, developing networks and support service and becoming accepted by the Aboriginal communities with the help of significant respected Aboriginal community members. The research team would like to emphasise the effort that has gone into ensuring the community have both accepted the team as well as the project. It has been a vital part of the um, of part of the project's progress because we believe that without that connection, the project would not would unfortunately have folded. Aims of the study. So our aims are to determine the social and emotional well-being of a group of mothers and carers of Indigenous children from birth to school age in the Taree and Foster area, to determine the change in social and emotional well-being of a participant when attending an individual arts health session of four hours. Determine if attending an arts health intervention for a five-week period will change social and emotional well-being. Determine suitability of an arts health intervention for the participant to facilitate improved social and emotional well-being. And to determine suitability for an arts health intervention for the partner organisations. The study will use validated psychological, psychosocial measures to address aims one, two, and three, and investigator design multiple choice and short answered surveys to address aims four and five. Our sites and logistics. Our sites include the Tobwaba AMS, the Biripai AMS, and Communities for Children Tari. Each session or week will take approximately four hours in duration. Location in which the project will run out include the Tyree Public School, specifically designed playroom in Tyree, and the Tobwaba Arts Centre in Foster. The recruitment of participants will come from each group's perinatal support programs for Aboriginal women, and each site will have an allocated staff member participate in the study for the purpose of determining organisation appropriateness. Each site have identified a clinical support person to provide clinical intervention face-to-face -face if and when required. And the research team have provided organisations with posters and flyers tailored to each site for recruitment, which are all culturally respected and appropriate. The participation's inclusions include mothers and female carers of Indigenous children aged from birth to commencement of school age, includes pregnant women, includes mothers over the age of uh, 18, and excludes mothers under the age of 18, and excludes males. The pilot program. We are beginning with we are beginning this uh, program with a pilot at the request of the three partnered organisations. Each organisation has slightly different clientele, and is, and the suitability of the program for each organisation is one of the aims of the project. Participants will undertake a five week arts health program while being involved in a facilitated discussion about social and emotional well being for mothers and carers of young Indigenous children. I was particularly chosen as a successful PhD candidate for this project because of both my clinical background as an Indigenous mental health clinician and for my passion of improving the lives of my people. As you will see on the screen, the activities table for the five weeks includes the pre-assessment week where we meet face-to-face -face between the research team, myself, and the participants to review and sign consent forms as well as provide the participants explanation of all the measures and when they will occur. Explanations of the vouchers for attending the program, as we believe that their time is vital and, and if they have any questions and the research team, uh, for the research team before we commence.
Our measures include the Kessler 10. This tool has been validated for the use in Indigenous communities to identify stress, anxiety and depression. Medical Outcomes Study Social Support Scale. This tool identifies the social supports that an individual has. The Growth and Empowerment Measure. This measure is self-explanatory. The Aboriginal Resilience and Recovery Questionnaire. This survey has been recently developed by an Aboriginal psychologist, Dr. Graham G, and considers the impacts of culture, community and changes to the individual resilience. Uh, Dr. G was actually extremely excited to allow us to use his, uh, his survey in our project. The Social and Emotional Wellbeing Items from the National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Health Survey of 2004 and 2005 Items from the national, uh, here we are looking at what, the, what supports the participants feel they have available. And the self-assessment mannequin SAM, which will be completed at the start and at the end of each session. This is a validated measure of mood change. The topics of discussion and where the weeks, for what the weeks include. We'll be looking at what is social and emotional wellbeing and how each participant defines social and emotional wellbeing postnatal depression and understanding what postnatal depression is and where and how to get help. A big focus this week is looking at being a good enough parent, not a perfect parent. The challenging behaviours associated with toddlers and looking at tips and tricks, a focus on developing healthy sleeping patterns, tantrums, fussy eaters and toilet training. Then we follow on with family relationship concerns. This week we focus on developing an understanding on what is domestic violence. And here we go and where to go for help. This topic was specifically requested by all three sites due to the large amount of casework, large amount of cases each site have been dealing with. Okay. The arts project. The Strengthening Women's Project research team recognises that art changes lives, builds resilience and strengthens communities. The research team would like to acknowledge Alicia Lonsdale, the artist behind the Creative Creatures program. Alicia shared her time and stories with the research team when teaching the technique for Creative Creatures. As you will see on the slide, some example of these creatures created by the research team. We have a lizard, a platypus, old man emu, and of course a dolphin, which is the totem of the Foster and Tari region. The old ways of making. Traditionally, Aboriginal toys were made from carved wood, shells, grasses, wood, leaves, bark, and other organic materials such as clay, animal bone, and manure. These toys demonstrated a resourcefulness and imagination of Aboriginal children throughout Australia to use their natural environment to create objects for play. Many of the skills used to create toys in the past became skills that were also needed in weaving and creating tools needed in adult life. The new ways of making. From the 1970s and 1980s, toys demonstrated a shift from mostly traditional and natural resources to more modern materials, often recycled metal, plastic and cloth. Creative Creatures is designed to allow the women to create a creature that they imagine. This art project was chosen particularly as the women can make it as simple or as complex as they wish. As we were working on building social, uh, the self-esteem, we aimed for a project that would have the least amount of negative impact on the women's wellbeing. We were also after an activity that allowed the women to be active in the art making, but not have to concentrate intensively throughout the art making. We want the women to be able to concentrate on discussion, contribute and listen to one another. Our expected outcomes. 
Through the means of yarning and education opportunities such as confidence and self-sufficiency will give the participants opportunity to reflect on individual life stresses and anxieties that contribute to their ability to cope with their current life events. Social and emotional wellbeing support will be both offered and provided during the sessions with the availability of post-session supports and referrals. Our short term. It is highly likely that participants will ex experience an alteration in mood over the course of the individual sessions. Participants will gain knowledge of local support services available to them and participants will experience increased social connections with women also needing support. However, with our long-term outcomes, it's felt that it is unlikely to be any significant long-term mental health benefits from, for participants from a, sh a short five-week pilot. However, the next phase of the project is expected to achieve more long-term outcomes due to the extended program time. Risks identified. There is a risk that participants may become distressed during discussions led by the research team around mental health and strategies to improve mental health. Dr. Beth Ma has a clinical expertise suitable to support women at the time and determine if they need additional clinical care. Myself, as an Aboriginal mental health clinician who also has experience with working with Aboriginal people and Aboriginal women, will be present at every session and is able to assist supporting the women and the partners or organisations. What's next, you asked? At the end of the project, all participants will be invited to attend community forums where the project outcomes will be shared. As this project has been guided by the community the whole way through, we want to ensure that they are fully informed on the findings and how this program aims to progress. Additionally, all participants will be asked if they would like to attend a future long-term project with a similar style, and if so, then the research team will keep the participants' contact details on record. What will happen to the data collected? The data will be collected in a de-identified manner, stored in an electronic file that is password protected with only the identified research team having access to this information. It is anticipated that the data will inform future grant applications for a larger, longer intervention with the same aim in the, sa in the same geographical locations. We anticipate that this data will provide outcomes for aims 1, 2, 4 and 5. However, we believe it is unlikely to show so change to social and emotional well-being in the longer term, aim 3. It is our belief that aim 3, determining if attending an arts health intervention for a five-week period will change social and emotional well-being will require a long intervention. This will become the next phase of my, of my thesis. I would like to thank you all for your time for tonight. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.